welcome to Technology and Security. TS is a podcast exploring the intersections of emerging technologies and national security. I'm your host, Dr. Mia Hamanderi. I'm the inaugural director of the Emerging Technology Program at the United States Studies Center, and we're based in the University of Sydney. My guest today is Hamish Hansford. Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Hamish is the Deputy Secretary of the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Group at the Department of Home Affairs. He has over 20 years' experience across government, including as the inaugural head of the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Centre. He led the delivery and implementation of Australia's 2020 cybersecurity strategy, and he's worked in cybercrime, combating terrorism and counting child exploitation, as well as on reform of critical and emerging technologies, data security and surveillance. We're thrilled to have you here, Hamish. Thrilled to be here. We're coming to you today from the lands of the Ngunnawal people. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, both here and wherever you're listening. We acknowledge their continuing connection to land, sea and community and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So Hamish, the Department of Home Affairs has shifted around to respond to government priorities and you are in a new and expanded role. Can you take us through what this looks like broadly for Home Affairs and specifically for your role? Sure. So uh, the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Group covers both my previous role, which is the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Centre, covering critical infrastructure regulation. Also have an industry partnership uh, division, really looking at critical infrastructure policy, how we do national collaboration. Then we've got um, our digital policy and uh, digital security policy division, which really looks at what are the cyber security challenges for Australia, what are our critical technology challenges for Australia from a security perspective and what are the identity and biometric security challenges that Australia needs to face. And then finally, we've got a cyber security response division, which really looks at how do we harden government IT, um, but how do we also respond to cyber instances that occur across the Australian economy. So we're trying to bring together that whole mission under one group uh, and we're there in total support of the National Cyber Security Coordinator when they're appointed. And, and on that, you've been responsible for reforms to the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act, or SOCI Act, and led the principal regulatory authority for all of the critical infrastructure in Australia. It's, it's a really significant reform program. Can you explain briefly why it's important and what it actually covers? So from 2018, we, we legislated quite a narrow definition of what we meant by infrastructure, just covering four different classes of critical infrastructure. So ports, electricity, water, gas, and, and subsequently uh, running alongside telecommunication security. By the time we... we got to develop the 2020 cybersecurity strategy, the overwhelming threat environment, the understanding and um, input by industry was, you've got to expand the definition of what's critical We've got to really look at the infrastructure that powers the economy, that, that really creates us as a prosperous nation and protect it en masse. And so we went about um, in 2020 legislating for a much more expanded set of critical infrastructure, now 11 sectors across 22 different asset classes, so covering the full field of what we mean by infrastructure and then putting in place both preventative and responsive obligations and, and frameworks can I just jump in and sure. ask you to explain what an asset class is for, for the listeners? Sure. If you look at uh, the, the energy sector, it's particular electric, electricity generation, storage and transmission assets. If you look at um, the telecommunications sector, it, it's particular um, telecommunications networks. If you look at healthcare, well, healthcare is a really big sector of the economy. We could, we could have gone down and, and called every GP critical, but what we've said is it's hospitals with functioning intensive care 
units as the most critical acute area of um, requiring protection. So we're trying to get pretty granular on what we mean by critical infrastructure right down to the asset level. Awesome, mate. We're going to come back and get a little bit deeper in Soki for the for I the real nerd. I could talk for hours if you like. <laughs> I, I have no doubt. Um, but we'll just cover off on a few other things first. It seems like you know what you've outlined there is that this new group is is blurring the line between what we think of as cyber and critical infrastructure. What benefits and challenges does that have from a coordination standpoint? So I think uh, overwhelmingly cyber challenges really actually challenge infrastructure. And and when you kind of look at the cost of some of the risk mitigations we've put in place, cyber overwhelmingly is the most expensive um, cost uh, for for mitigation of of risk. And so if that's what's driving um, one of the key threats for infrastructure, that's then consequently our focus. And and I think really why we're calling out cyber and infrastructure security, because cyber is so important and will be into the future. And uh, then I think supply chain Security is kind of the next big challenge that we've got as a country. When we look into securing our own systems, we then think about, well, what else might be able to impact the functioning of businesses, of infrastructure, of, of particular individuals, and supply chain uh, features pretty heavily. So that, that's why I think they're, they're immersed together, um, both in the title of the group that I run, but I think um, foundationally in terms of the day-to-day work of infrastructure providers. Great. That's really good insight. Thank you. And it's really important, I think, for people to to be aware of those interdependencies. There's something, as you've you've brought up with the supply chain there, that it's, it's coming for second and third order effects that we don't always think about in our everyday life. Can you talk us through government responses to the Optus and Medibank breaches? And I know you've kind of spoken a little bit before about, about the changes that have happened since then. So how would government work through a similar issue now? Well, we, we work through cyber incidents every day almost of the year. And I think Optus and Medibank were great learnings for how we respond to cyber incidents, both from a technical perspective, which is the, the key role uh, for the Australian Signals Directorate's Australian Cyber Security Centre. And I know you've had Jess Hunter on one of these podcasts before, and she's talked you through the technical response. What we've learned out of some of the big uh, cyber instances that have happened across the economy is there's consequential harm that could occur for individuals who might have lost some of their identity documentation. And so we've put a lot of thought into how we respond. And that's one of the key areas of my group. We've set up a a cyber response coordination unit to enable uh, the coordination of responses. And we, at the Commonwealth level, we, we often think about response in a harm mitigation or a consequence management perspective. And have called um, a national coordination mechanism, for instance, in in some of the recent cyber instances, and that's that that secretariat function and that national coordination function is run by our national emergency management agency, and then the subject matter experts surge in. Really, um, when when we're in COVID, in the middle of COVID. There were uh, different events that really caused national coordination arrangements to come together and have quick meetings, really outcomes focused, bringing together a whole range of disparate stakeholders. And we've used that same methodology for cyber instances and cyber incidents. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I know so many people often often don't see the whole machinations and wonder how it comes together. And you've kind of touched on there uh, some of that stakeholder engagement with industry. How have you seen industry and academic engagement particularly evolve over your time in government? I think um, 
particularly over the last couple of years, we've been consulting on cybersecurity reforms, on critical tech reforms, and I, I just see that the consultation and collaboration is just getting so much better. And, and so even with the most recent call for views for the cybersecurity strategy, we've seen very high quality, thoughtful submissions and lots of thoughtful roundtables where people are up for the challenge of thinking about how do we create, uh, in, in the minister's mind, the, the most secure country from a cybersecurity perspective by 2030. People are up for that challenge. And we're seeing people proactively reach out, um, particularly on the critical infrastructure side, we see people who are highly mature who say, how can I help nationally? We've, we've learned a lot by running exercises, by implementing a change program on risk management. How do I now help others? And, and a great example of that is our... We set up a data sector working group under the Trusted Information Sharing Network, and they're they're thinking about how do we help um, smaller players in regional Australia. That's one of the challenges that they're up for, and it's really great to see that level of collaboration and engagement. Yeah, it must be really exciting because often engagement in democratic processes is is not thought of as, you know, uh, industry's strong point. And yet I, I really see that groundswell of interest in contributing to better policy as well, in particularly in the tech policy space. So we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the Soki Act for all the nerds out there. Firstly, though, can you talk us through the past year of mandatory cyber incident reporting? So when, when you think about the figures, so in the first period, which was April to December of 2022, we had 47 um, cybersecurity incidences um, reported uh, into Report Cyber, and they've they've ticked the box that um, they were a critical infrastructure entity, and, and they've told uh, the regulatory authority, the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Centre. So what that really means is 47 successful cyber impacts on either the confidentiality, availability, or integrity of a critical infrastructure asset, and that that stands in contrast, for example, to one cyber incident reported every seven minutes for all of Australia, which is the, the latest reporting out of the Australian Cybersecurity Centre. So we, we're looking at that information and saying, actually, that's a lower level of um, successful cyber incidents impacting infrastructure than we would have expected. But we did set the threshold pretty high. We, we really wanted to know what are those successful incidences that actually are causing an impact. Fortunately, we, we haven't had any significant cyber incidences reported, um, which is great because if there's a significant incident, then we've got something that's going majorly wrong. The legislation covers a broad range of critical infrastructure assets and roles relating to them. Can you describe how recent efforts simplify asset definition and obligations for critical infrastructure responsible entities as well as the direct interest holders? Sure. So we've set the task for ourselves at the um, passage of the legislation back in April of 2022, the second of two pieces of legislation, to try and make uh, the SOCI Act uh, much more user-friendly. So we've just finished a significant amount of guidance which tries to break down for people who are wondering, am I a critical infrastructure asset, tries to break down what we mean by different asset classes. So so different people can look at our website now and say, actually, we, I think I meet this definition and it takes you through the journey about whether or not you are. I mean, the easiest thing that we could have done is just used companies and said, yep, this company is critical infrastructure, but it doesn't get to the philosophy of actually which part of the company. There might be a company that 
that does 20 different functions, we might be interested in one which is about electricity generation or it might be about the running of a telecommunications network or the running of a hospital. So we've tried to break it down and we've tried to also um, provide in the Act the ability to to narrow the definition if we need and we've done that for particular hospitals. The, the hospital definition covered a lot of hospitals in Australia and for the application of the risk management program, for example, we've narrowed the definition to really focus on those major hospitals uh, in Australia that might then require risk mitigants. The newly released Critical Infrastructure Asset Class Definition Guidance is intended to reduce confusion and complexity for industry, and you've just outlined how that works. Having rules and various instruments does make you more nimble to responding to different situations, obviously, rather than requiring legislative amendments. How will the critical infrastructure risk management plans required under the latest February rules help boards and senior management to take responsibility and manage risk for assets? So over the next six months, um, the, the critical infrastructure will be developing a risk management program. And so that, that'll be looking at what are the material risks that impact the functioning of my infrastructure asset and how can I, as far as is reasonably practical, mitigate those. And then looking at the kind of three, sorry, four areas. One, information and cyber security. Two, the personnel security issues that might arise for people having um, access to the critical parts of infrastructure. Then looking at, at the critical components of the physical bits of infrastructure and then supply chain issues. So by August, uh, we hope that every critical infrastructure asset will have a risk management program. Then um, we, the process that we've put in place is that annually we're asking boards to attest that the companies have a risk management program. It's being kept up to date. It's being adhered to and to receive an annual attestation. The first one is required between the 1st of July 2024 and the 28th of September 2024. And so that's the point at which boards will be saying, do I have a risk management program? Is it adequate? So what we're, what we're really trying to do when you boil it down is help the security managers, the chief risk officers, the CISOs actually have that conversation with their CEOs and boards and get the board to take board level responsibility for their risk management. We thought that was a, a better approach than saying, submit it to the government, get them to sign off on it. Actually getting boards involved and getting boards to attest, we thought was a, a change in the culture of the, the way in which some companies operate. For others, it, it's routine business. Government has set a goal to be the world's most cyber secure nation by 2030. And it is a hugely aspirational goal. How far are off that are we now? And what do we need to do? I mean, obviously, um, you know, consultation and drafting of a new cybersecurity strategy, but kind of where are we now? And, and in such an aspirational goal in seven years, you know, where do we need to be? I think that the second part of your question is easy to answer because if you have to be a leader in every single part of cybersecurity, whether that's international, critical infrastructure, general economy, small to medium enterprises, education skills, whatever you kind of think of in terms of cybersecurity, that's a, a big requirement for Australia. But I think it's not coming off a, a zero base. We've got different elements of our cybersecurity maturity that have really great parts of the economy and, and areas where there's, there's work to do. We've got, um, we've talked about a world-class leading set of critical infrastructure laws. The, the challenge now is about implementation of those laws, building capability. So I think we're, we're, we've got really good elements uh, and we've got areas for improvement.
We talked a little bit about the risk management plans for critical infrastructure and and uh, and engaging boards and senior management more. Do you think something like that will be reflected in the cybersecurity strategy? Well, I think um, the the work that's been done to date on critical infrastructure will be um, foundational. It kind of has to be because that's an area of work that we've worked on to try and lift infrastructure. The big, the big question then is, what about the rest of the economy? What are the types of things that might um, help improve Australia's cybersecurity outcomes. And the discussion paper really points to a whole range of possible initiatives that the government might consider, including what's the responsibilities of different companies, what role should boards play, does Australia need a cybersecurity act, all of those types of issues are things that the government's looking at. How have the states and territories responded to this challenge? Yeah, so I work with states and territories uh, through the National Cybersecurity Committee, so effectively the state and territory chief information security officers. It's a highly engaged collaborative group. Every state and territory is looking at cybersecurity as a really key priority. Many of the states and territories have that function vested in their premiers or chief ministers' departments. So taking it very seriously, states and territories are engaging very significantly in the policy agenda and, and really thinking about how do we collectively, as a set of governments across Australia, improve cybersecurity? How do we look at government security as part of that? How do we think about cybersecurity response? And then how do we think about the, the uplift that's required uh, across every part of the economy. So strong part, strong um, partnership and strong collaborators. The US has also released their own cybersecurity strategy in March of this year. And, and we know that uh, one of the drafters was seconded briefly to Home Affairs. Is there been a lot of alignment between the two processes? You know, what can you share about that? And, and you know, in terms of that US strategy, there was a this significant component about the international reach as one of the pillars. They had five pillars in their strategy. Can you talk a little bit about the Australian version, the alignment between them and, you know, our role in the region? Sure. So we're learning a lot from the US strategy, particularly about their narrative, their engagement with industry, and we're talking to the, the US government about lessons learned. And as you mentioned, have had one of the key writers out here in Australia talking to us about the process that America went through. More generally then, I think we, we have uh, really put the international and domestic elements together in the consultation for the cybersecurity strategy under Minister, Assistant Minister Watt and Minister O'Neill. We're bringing together both the domestic and international elements of uh, cybersecurity into one strategy. So that's the big change that you'll see in 2023 um, comparative to other years where there's been a effectively a domestic cybersecurity strategy that points to international activities and then a, a, sub, a separate international engagement strategy that sits alongside, that, that's being built together as one cybersecurity strategy. And I think it does really demonstrate then that domestic and international really go to um, in a, a cybersecurity environment where things uh, don't are not bound by laws. Actually, leadership in the region, leadership internationally and domestic leadership are both equally important. It's really exciting to hear because you do hear this kind of glib response of domestic and international so often, but then end up being separated. So it's really nice to hear they're being developed uh, in conjunction with each other. I'm going to go to a segment now where we talk about alliances. And you've kind of touched on it, but if you could elaborate a bit, what countries are leaders in elements of critical infrastructure and cyber policy? 
Well, I think there are a range of countries across the world that have really good elements. So France's critical infrastructure regime that we thought about, we looked at, we, we consulted with the French government in, in the design of our critical infrastructure regime. We think about um, Japan, India, United States as key thinkers on cybersecurity and critical and emerging tech. Um, European countries, uh, some of them are doing some really interesting work. NATO is looking at critical infrastructure as well. Um, some of the, the Nordic countries are, are really forward leading on cybersecurity and infrastructure security issues. The UK have really good elements on telecommunications security. So we're looking at a whole range of different areas. Singapore looking at government security. So I think when you, you look at different countries, the really great thing about working with international partners and we're partnering uh, with, with Australia's lead on the counter ransomware initiative task force, really partnering with a whole range of countries. And the thing that really strikes me is that no, no individual country has all of the answers, but actually together we probably do. And there are really good elements from a whole range of different countries that we can learn from, um, emulate, partner with, and, and seek to um, build on. It's remiss of me not to ask, have asked a direct question. So can you take me through the counter ransomware task force? It was set up uh, late last year, I think. And where is it at now? So it's a, a group of countries really thinking about under the leadership of the, the US who convened us all, um, thinking about how do we best counter ransomware as a, a really big challenge to our respective societies. Australia's taken on the lead of the counter ransomware initiative task force. So we're thinking about what are the individual response initiatives that can make us uh, a much more secure set of countries, much more prepared to respond to ransomware. There was a recent meeting in Belfast of that grouping and we're starting to build out a whole range of projects that go from everything from information sharing to sharing of capability to thinking about capacity building. So a whole, whole range of initiatives that really go to no one part of a society and no one society has all the answers on countering ransomware, but actually we're stronger together with different countries. And this is a, a bit of a different sort of grouping, um, but bringing us all together for a singular purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And this ability of the idea of being able to collaborate with other nations to mitigate you know, individual harm as well as protect national security is, is a really difficult challenge. How do you approach that collaboration then, especially when you're talking with nations that have really different ideas and values? So I think um, there there are always um, conversations between different countries that you can have, and um, I think that's really important to have dialogue. When we when it comes to collaboration and engagement, there are obviously um, different areas where we have. Um, deep expertise that we share with different partners and we do that on a really trusted basis. Um, but I think having those international conversations and actually um, having debates and discussions is really healthy um, for um, the globe and, and actually building different relationships on different issues. I think the, we've talked about the Countering Ransomware Initiative Task Force. That's a whole range of different countries um, and and really partnering and understanding where pe people are coming from actually builds out a whole set of new ideas, some of which we've never thought of before. Given the, you, you know, the discussion that we had a little earlier about just how wide-reaching technology is in every part of our life, 
it seems like there's going to be a lot of issues like this coming forward. You know, you've you've got TikTok, but you've also got you know foreign-made cameras in government buildings. This is a, lot, a huge amount of ground to cover. And how do you start to look at these issues from a national security and personal harm perspective? So I think Australia has set out uh, in in all of those different issues you've mentioned, and, and way back as far as um, twenty eighteen, where the the government um, of the day set out a framework for high risk vendors in our telecommunications network. I think Australia's got a pretty good track record of looking at technology risks, technology security risks, and putting in commensurate responses to to look at well, what are the areas about where education might be a good response, where what are the areas where there is a, a direction required, and, and that's obviously one of the areas the government has made a decision on, um, on in relation to one element. But but I think we're, we're up for the, the general discussion about how to best secure um, technology. Our perspective is um, there are some technologies which are fundamental to um, the society which which can be used um, for security um, against Australia's security. So so we're we're focused on those particular areas. We're seeing tech decoupling in some areas between the United States and China. What are some of the tensions from your your perspective, and how far could it and should it go? So I think uh, one of the the big areas is transparency. We've put out, for example, some critical technology principles about what 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 do we as a government look at in terms of um, the the requirements from technology providers and so I think that really um, looks at what are the things that Australia expects from society generally and from technology in particular and so transparency rates really highly on there uh, and so I think that the the more we start to think about technology we'll think about the balance between regulation market intervention what that looks like. We're looking at things like uh, supply chains. We're looking at things like uh, how do we we secure technology? How do we look at telecommunication systems? I think they're all going to be live discussions as technology continues to impact on our society. And and it's always in the frame of what a, a liberal democracy would expect. So you've mentioned supply chain security a couple of times now. Interestingly, you know, on the podcast, I've had really diverse views and some of them, you know, Jess, for example, highlighted the, the role of being able to secure devices no matter where components have come from. There, There is a real discussion, particularly in the US, about a kind of a, a bigger decoupling or a stronger decoupling. Where do you think we sit in terms of supply chain security? And, you know, you, you've highlighted there the principles and particularly of transparency. What does that look like? So I think supply chain security, we learned during the pandemic that it is really important because we, we kind of used to rely on a just-in-time methodology and that was blown out of the water as we saw so many different materials from across the world, no matter what it is, technology-related or building supplies, food. So I think supply chains just generally have been stressed and people are looking deeply into them. Um, one of the prudential standards is looking at third and fourth party supply chains, which is is interesting in a regulatory sense. So I, I think Australians, Australian businesses, the government is just looking at supply chains generally um, as a result of our environment over the last couple of years. And I think that that will continue no matter what um, part of the supply chain uh, there is. And I kind of look at 
critical infrastructure. And when we couldn't get people over to Australia for repairing of our infrastructure assets, we thought about different ways to respond. So I think we're looking at supply chains generally. I think that's based on our history and the disruption that occurred with COVID. But I think whether it's technology or otherwise, they'll just become increasingly important. We've seen various efforts to regulate AI, including Europe's AI Act and the Biden administration's AI Bill of Rights. We've also seen on the other end of the spectrum, Italy temporarily banned ChatGPT and China's draft regulations on generative AI. You know, you mentioned it before, but but why do you think AI is so difficult to regulate? I think um, in any new um, technology, any new element of an economy, regulation and legislation almost comes in as a secondary nature. So we kind of think about 5G and then the regulatory responses that, that occurred in, for example, 2018, as I've mentioned. I think AI is no different from other technology, except to say that the sophistication, the ability to use AI in a whole range of different scenarios, I think we're grappling with what, what might be the scenarios in the future. And then we'll see legislation and regulation potentially catch up to um, mitigate some of those um, consequences that might arise from a security or safety perspective. But I think AI is, um, inf- has infinite possibility. And so if you think about that, but we're always going to be looking at new technologies and new areas of society and w- what's the legitimate right of the government to intervene to protect the population versus the right of the market to operate. That's always, I think, going to be a perennial question. Absolutely. And, and do you see that there are any tensions between democracies and regulation of such fast moving and impactful technologies? Well, I think that's what we've got parliaments for. I think that's why they're there to have that debate between what's what's legitimate um, and what, what might be the guardrails that we put in place. And having supported governments to introduce a whole range of legislation over the last, well, 22 years, um, I think that that's a live discussion. And it's something that we've always got to balance as a democracy and we've always got to continue to look at different frameworks. And it, it's not too, too long before legislation needs to be reviewed and updated um, in a whole range of different situations. I've worked, for example, on very technology-related reforms. And there's always that balance between technology agnostic regulation and legislation versus being really prescriptive. And I think that that's a challenge of a democracy to continue to look at how do you best legislate and how do you balance um, personal liberty and freedom uh, versus the protection of the greater populace. Yeah, absolutely. And it it seems like AI... You know, in some ways, we've regulated every kind of historical harm uh, to date. So we will manage to regulate AI in some capacity. But it does seem as though the, our approach to regulation of AI might set us up for future new for future technologies. And, and you know, one of the things you just alluded to there about not being too prescriptive is really significant because when we look back at legislation that was passed only 20 years ago, you know, the, the digital society we're in now isn't reflected. And so we need to be able to have nimble legislation and, you know, regulatory frameworks that actually allow us to respond to new technologies as they emerge. I'm going to go to a segment here, Emerging Tech for Emerging Leaders. You've held some leadership roles during really big tech developments. Can you give insight into how you've led others to navigate major tech changes or regulation in your career? 
Sure, it's like a, a job interview, isn't it? Um, so, <laughs> hopefully not as difficult, Hamish. <laughs> that's that's true. That's true. Hopefully not. And there's no job at the end. I've already got one. But but I think um, one of the big challenges to lead people is um, how do you describe what can often be really complex technical um, legislation or, or te- technology issues that and try and get a deep understanding of those, but then at the same time be able to explain it in a really simple way that members of the public can understand that people who are legislating on and who have an ex- expertise, for example, in law or parliamentary issues, you can you can start to shape a narrative. So one of the, the big areas that, that I've focused on um, in my career is how do you build a compelling narrative? How do you then use your expertise to put that in a frame where people can clearly understand. Well, I certainly hopefully get better over time and I know my staff are, are looking at the last couple of years, what we've done, what we can do better and how we can start to, to actually involve our own staff but, but also others in a, a national conversation about every change that we'd like to make in in society from a security perspective. Thank you. I, I just realised I haven't set the bar high enough because you didn't say it was like Senate estimates. So <laughs> I feel I've failed. Um, can you share some emerging technologies you think up and coming leaders of today and tomorrow need to know about? Sure. I think I think you mentioned um, AI as really the foundational change. But when, when you, you look at what we're worried about in the future, synthetic biology, whole range of different technologies, I think, have the ability to fundamentally transform society. But I'm going to be a little bit simpler and say 5G um, rolled out across the world foundational change in network technology. I think we've got a huge opportunity, both in Australia and across the world, to think about what's the functionality that's that can be developed on those networks. And we're certainly not using the full functionality of 5G networks, and there's a whole lot of opportunity ahead, and, and that's really what I'm thinking about on a day-to-day basis. For the non-telco nerds out there, can you explain what you mean? Well, um, 5G foundational speed technology and actually starts to change telecommunication networks from having a central core to a, a much more disaggregated network, which means that there's software that can be developed on the top of 5G networks, which could do everything from changing the way we work to the way that we do medicine to the way that we um, look at our housing. It could be much more energy efficient, have great impacts on our environment. So a whole range of of possible applications and devices and software that we could run on 5G that we don't necessarily today, um, starting to emerge obviously um, when you look at your phone and when you look at different devices, but so much more opportunity. Thank you. Just a final question on the emerging tech for emerging leaders. What are some of the key transferable skills between regulation, technology and security? Well, I think um, that, that there are so many life skills which can apply to everything. And people often ask me, what does it take to work in a security environment or, or what do I need to understand from a technology point of view? And I, I come back to two kind of really key skills. One is the ability to solve problems. And 
um, legislation, regulation, security issues, technology are all just different problems waiting to be solved from my perspective. And the second thing is what makes people stand out from others, I think, is the level of curiosity, the level of engagement, and the level of buy-in that individuals have to any particular problem. And I think they go hand in glove with each other. Not a popular answer, but but one I think is has great utility. It's actually really interesting the more that you are engaged in emerging technologies, I think the more that you start to value the very essential human components. And particularly as we move forward with human and machine interaction, the role of leaders is really going to be bringing that human element. I think it's really important not to lose sight of that. So I completely agree. Coming up is eyes and ears. What have you been reading, listening to or watching lately that might be of interest to our audience? Well, I, I read a lot of fiction, so um, Where the Crowdads Sing was my, my most recent book, which I thought was fantastic, not technology-related, but um, more generally um, turned into a movie, so it's good, about an individual in a forest growing up in the mangrove, so um, recommend that highly. Um, but I've been reading a lot about Ukraine at the moment, um, blog posts, um, different articles, different books, and the most recent one was by um, one of... Um, the the media representatives to to really outline how was media used, particularly in the initial stages of the Ukraine invasion and um, war, that that actually found fundamentally changed the way that people responded to the the way in which they received information, what was trusted, what wasn't trusted. So I thought um, that was a particularly interesting um, perspective. But I think every everything that's coming out of Ukraine at the moment just gives such great insight into what's happened, what's to come potentially, and and technology has been foundational to that whole environment. It's really interesting. I'm going to ask another question. As you know, I've done a fair bit of work on uh, Russian disinformation. Um, Talking about the role of uh, technology in in conflict and specifically around um, social media, use of telecommunications, I guess as an observer, can you talk to what has piqued your interest in that area? I think um, we we looked at the... uh, issue and and the way that Ukraine responded. And you kind of think about um, what what are the types of responses that work in in any situation? And with Ukraine, I think there's been really great innovation, and I think that's really what sparks interest in how does a society who's effectively uh, facing an existential risk actually respond? And I just look at the innovation, particularly from a technology perspective, the ability of the international community then to support um, the the Ukraine government in responses, including deployment of satellites. And and other multinational companies helping out with um, moving data to the cloud, the general population and their use of um, social media. I think it's been a really interesting insight um, with lots of innovation and unexpected areas of development over the course of the last year. Hamish, what do you do in your downtime to keep sane? Well, um, I've got two children which, uh, well, I was going to say keep me sane, but keep me grounded, if I could put it like that, uh, and try and get out most mornings on my road bike to try and uh, make sure that I start the day in a really healthy way. And I think that really keeps me grounded. It keeps me much more focused and really a core essential part of my life. Without it, um, I kind of suffer a little bit. Is there anything I didn't ask you that would have been great to cover? So much. We could be here for hours, but but nothing in particular. 
Okay. All right. Um, Hamish, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me as well. Thanks for listening to Technology and Security. I've been your host, Dr. Mia Hammonderi. If there was a moment you enjoyed today or a question you have about the show, feel free to tweet me at M-I-A-H underscore H-E or send an email to the address in the show notes. You can find out more about the work we do on our website, also linked in the show notes. We hope you enjoy this episode and we'll see you soon.